Hello, it's Oliver Wong from Heat Rocks with another Heat Rocks mini-sode for our November hiatus. And this is a question that was posed to me from Pierre Ringwald in our Facebook group. Quote, I'm curious to know what drum break or other moments in a given song or songs still give you a rush, unquote. So this is clearly inspired by our question during our shows when we ask our guests as well as one another about our favorite moments on different albums. And if I remember properly, I think this was a question that I had come up with to begin including as part of our our stock categories. And it was just reflective of the ways in which the more I thought about it is how I encounter albums and songs, which is to think about moments within it. And it could just be a single bar. It could be something a little bit longer. But the point here is that our relationship to songs is often not necessarily the entirety of the song, but it's moments within the song. And it could be something that caught our attention the very first time we heard it because it caught us off guard or by surprise. It could be the thousandth time we've heard the song, but because we know it's coming and that moment for whatever reason gives us pleasure, but there's this anticipation and payoff that comes with it. And so I think this is something that a lot of people can identify with because I think one reason why we love to listen to music is because it does fill us with pleasure and a sense of awe and amazement. And much of the time, I do think that comes down to these singular moments at different points that for whatever reason, on some kind of phenomenological way, it hits us, it touches us, it just lights something up inside of us. And so that is the spirit behind the question. And to answer this one for the mini-sode, I decided to bring back one of our old guests. In fact, our oldest, not in terms of chronological age, but in terms of when we taped our episodes. And this is Dr. Lauren Kajikawa, who's an associate professor at George Washington University in the Washington, D.C. area. He is a longtime friend, well-trained in both ethnomusicology and musicology, author of the book Sounding Race in Rap Songs, which came out on UC Press in 2015. And he was part of our pilot episode when before we even had a name for this show, but me, Morgan, and Lauren sat down to tape an episode all about Dr. Dre's The Chronic, which you can find in our feed. I think we aired it uh, maybe around uh, wintertime back when we first launched the show three years ago. And I decided to have him back because I wanted a musicologist to break down, at least on some level, what's actually happening with these different moments that make them so memorable. So with that, Lauren, welcome back to Heat Rocks. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to be back. I thought one place we could begin is to have you explain a little bit about what's happening when we talk about a break in a song. What is what's happening on a musicological level or that is happening within the arrangement or the production that is, in my mind, designed to capture our attention, to stand out. I mean, it's called a break for a reason, right? Because it's breaking from something before. So when you hear a break, what's usually happening in that moment? What is it that the producer or the musicians or the songwriter or the arranger, what are they doing here that produces that moment, if that question makes sense? Yeah, it does. And I think it, it varies. I think the answer is that it's, it's multiple. There's all different kinds of techniques, I think, that musicians and songwriters right use to create a sense of tension and drama and then give you that like moment of release i think is what 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 i hear you describing and what you're what the what the question asker is, is asking about um and so i can think of a few a few techniques right um one is like you have an established groove in a lot of funk music 
uh, and, and by dramatically stripping away layers of that groove, right? Um, that in itself can sometimes, um, you know, be, you know, have that kind of payoff, have that kind of like, you know, emotional excitement or, or you know, it's like as if the groove reveals itself. I think, <laughs> I think our, our mutual friend Joe Schloss quotes uh, a b-boy in, in his foundation book um, as saying like, the breakbeat is the moment that the groove takes its clothes off um, or the, you know, which is like yeah. a great, you know, visual metaphor for like, you know, it's where we get naked, we get down. Yeah. And so I think there's that. So, so I think one, yeah, one obvious way is like this dramatic stripping away of, of, of layers. You have like this established groove where lots of instruments are playing and you just pull some of them back. And so that's why I think breaks are sometimes percussion, right? We think about the break beat, the classic break beat, like the funky drummer, yeah. um, you know, is just the drum player playing, right? Just Clyde Stubblefield giving you the funk. But there are a lot of breaks, right, out there that feature other instruments, even singers, like in addition to percussion. And what's going on isn't just like, we're just giving you the drums, but we're, we're taking some layers of the groove away and leaving you with, with other layers, right? Um, and so I think that's, that's one technique. The other thing is like thinking about this in reverse, which is, the dramatic adding on of layers, which can also create that sense of, you know, tension, this buildup of tension and then payoff. One of the classic, you know, disco breaks is, you know, in Eddie Kendrick's um, uh, Girl, Girl, You Change, change Your mind. mind. Yeah. Right? About six minutes in, everything drops off and they rebuild the groove from the ground up. they drop the four on the floor, right? The drummer on the session drops the four on the floor. And that's like a moment where you're like, oh, now I'm in the groove, right? So that's not stripping away. That's like this process of addition and you you like hear things at layers of the groove adding and you're like oh it's building up it's building up and then 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 the beat drops right and then that's like gone from disco into edm and you know the idea of a beat drop is is a common feature of, of a lot of you know dance-based music um so there's that that technique i think in addition to that they're just ways of arranging tracks uh, i think apache is maybe the classic <laughs> song is like one giant break yeah. um, in a way uh, but the horn arrangements in, in Apache the, the, and, and the guitar uh, the way they work together to create these um, these these moments of drama um, again this might be from Joe I mean I think you know this might be from Joe's book as well but the idea of a good break song um, is has a sense of drama almost like I think one respondent that Joe talked to talked about a good breakbeat song as being like a car chase scene in a movie, you know, with like these moments of excitement and tension, right, that, that, that resolve. And so I think about those horn charts uh, that uh, Michael Viner's uh, incredible bongo band uh, in Apache, just like these 
builds up to um, these moments and then you get the breakbeat, right? And it's just so this increase of in, in volume and pitch. Yeah. Um, and so like arranging for other instruments in a way that sets up the break, I think is another, another technique. It feels like this is something that at some point songwriters landed on in terms of creating these moments of rupture, these moments of surprise, um, whether you're stripping down or you're stacking on in the ways that the examples that you were giving earlier is, I guess the question I'm, I'm trying to figure out here is how do they figure out that this would work? Or is it more, do you feel like it was more of an accident or does this come out of a longer tradition about creating points of rupture and departure as a way of maintaining audience attention? I suspect that this is, comes out of much older traditions, particularly those traditions in like Afro-diasporic forms of music mm -hmm. that are about groove and are mm -hmm. about getting people to dance and getting people to move. Um, I mean, some predecessors to breaks that I can think of are like in the swing era like there's a break in Benny Goodman, sing, sing, sing. Um, we can think about sec the second line tradition in New Orleans, right? Mm -hmm. Which, right, you have a big brass band playing, but then you got that that second line, the, the drummers um, who were in there and We'll do like those kind of breakdown sessions. I think if we're talking about U.S. popular music, I think we're going all the way back to Congo Square um, in terms of thinking about the role of percussion and groove-based music in motivating and inspiring people to, to dance and to get down. So Lauren, you know, maybe it would help. You've, you've already given some great examples here, but I wanted to play you an example of a, of a song that contains one of my favorite moments. That, and no matter how many times I've heard this song over the years, and it's probably been over 15 years since I was originally introduced to it, uh, just still love this particular guitar and drum breakdown in the middle of the song. And it's by a Peruvian group called We All, we All Together, that were very, very clearly influenced by post-Revolver Beatles. I mean, a lot of their songs sound straight up like Beatles songs. This is kind of more of a, um, a psych Rocky tune called Follow Me If You Can. And I'll, I'll start playing you the song from a few seconds before the actual um, switch in, the, in this track happens. And then maybe afterwards you can kind of explain what you're hearing that creates this moment of excitement, at least the way that, in which I'm experiencing it. guitar is really accenting like the main like one two three four one two three four I mean, there's a lot going on but you're but it's really coming down hard on the main beats um whereas the drum pattern is playing you know like a breakbeat right it's playing like a, a syncopated kick snare thing and so i think there's a lot of rhythmic contrast between those layers that i notice and then then it kind of the, the, it evolves to where um you know the drum is is continuing to, to sort of do that syncopate uh, syncopated rhythm but the guitar part um, 
it, it falls off of those main beats and is a little bit more syncopated in, in itself. And so, yeah. um, again, without doing any like real like analysis or whatever, I feel sure. like it's, it's this shift of, you know, rhythmic, um, if there's a shift in rhythm, um, and, and that is like, yeah, it's pleasurable to hear, to hear things line up, like they lock into a groove that lines up one way. And then it's almost like they shift the orientation and, and, the, and those same parts line up in a different pattern. The fact that they're able to keep that groove going but shift, um, but shift it and manipulate it uh, into something new. Um, it's like a magician-like <laughs> trick, right? It's Ooh, like, I like you know, that. Yeah, yeah, like right. It's like you know, here's this thing you thought was a white handkerchief, but it's a dove. You know, and and uh, a little hocus pocus uh, happening there, where where yeah, you go from one section of the break to another. So that was one of my examples. Let's talk about one of yours. One is like old dirty bastard Brooklyn Zoo, where. Um, you know, you hear that piano in a, in a really kind of off kilter way at the beginning and, and you kind of don't know where the beat is, like where's the downbeat, where's the one when, yeah. when you start listening to that. And also like Old Dirty is like jabbering and like hollering and like, you know, it just it's, it sounds all chaotic and you're like, oh man, like what is going on here? And then when RZA drops the beat, the, you feel the downbeat and then you hear that piano loop attached to that the grid of the break. I'm the one man on me song. I never been taken out. I keep MCs looking out. I drop signs like Crosby dropping babies. Enough to make a nigga go crazy. You're, I think the first time you hear that track, you're not sure if the piano, if that's a loop, if that's going to continue, you know, like, or is that just an intro? Is, is RZA just fucking around and giving you a little bit of chaos and then the actual beat is going to be something different? And so I think part of the, the pleasant surprise is like, no, well, that was the loop, dude. You're going to hear that for the rest of the song. But it doesn't really make sense or even seem like, it even seems like it might not be a part of the functioning beat until until the drums kick See now, you're learning how. I don't even like your profile. It's like, wow, That's a great example. I think Shimmy Shimmy Ya functions a lot in the same way where you have an opening loop, but you don't have the percussion yet. You don't know where that beat grid is until RZA decides to make it very clear to you. And there's that moment of anticipation you have for the beat to drop. And when it does, mm, feels good. Speaking of uh, points that feel good, I'm going to go with another one of my all-time favorites in terms of uh, favorite moments, and this is off of a just a wonderful Boogaloo LP, a Latin Soul LP from the mid-60s by Bobby Matos, the late Bobby Matos, who passed away a couple years ago. This is from My Latin Soul, which was released on Philips, and it's a song called Nighty Baila Como Yo, uh, which I think, if I remember, loosely translates into Nobody Can dance as well as I can, or that's the general paraphrase of it. And what's notable about the song is that it opens with a very distinctive set of chord progressions on piano, and then brings those back, the exact same progressions, at the first uh, break or first hook, chorus, whatever, in the song. And knowing that it comes back, because it's so lovely at the beginning, knowing it comes back in the middle is always something that I get I get hyped for and it always delivers. So let's take a listen to this and as always would love to hear Lauren your thoughts as to what is happening in this moment. 
it's got that piano montuno, right, that like locks in and it's, I mean, it's really bright major chords um, and very simple, like repetitive uh, riff or, or set of chords that are being played there. And um, it by itself would be utterly boring and um, unexciting. And yet play that over and over again with everything else that's going on around it. and you know, you get a beautiful musical moment. This one especially um, is a lot about the beauty of um, you know, Afro-diasporic musical practices mm -hmm. that are designed to make your body move, designed to get people to dance, uh, you know, designed to get us feeling joyous and cel celebratory about life. These are very powerful techniques, I think, that, that have a lot to do with taking things, individual parts that on their own um, are repetitive and not overly complicated, fitting them together in the right way that, you know, you could go on and listen to this forever and you, you can, yeah, give yourself over to, to the moment and to the groove. Thank you for that breakdown. And Lauren, what about another example from you? So one, one example is from Alice Coltrane's uh, Tadi Eldad album and the second track on that album called Turiya and Ramakrishna. Yeah. Uh, it's just a beautiful like piano, um, totally. you know, yeah. she's on the piano. And so Ron Carter's bass line in that um, track uh, is one of my favorite bass lines of all time. Increasingly throughout the, the solo, which is a relatively long solo, uh, it gets more and more melodic, more and more in the groove, um, and um, sort of he's able to build this tension in a way that you know it's, it's a very when I say melodic, it's it's, it's almost like you know he's singing. It, it, it's um, you know it's not a there's some bass solos in jazz where you know the bass player's playing like a lot of notes and kind of it's showing off their chops, how fast they can play, how many notes they can play, how they can move around, um, and this is just a really uh, it's like he's singing through the instrument. Um, and as he gets towards the end of the solo, or what you start to perceive as the end of the solo, like, oh, she's about to come back in on, Alice is about to come back in on piano. There are a number of points where it sounds like she could come in, but, but she doesn't. And she's, you know, lightly comping, you know, and like kind of providing some comping and, and support for him as he's playing. But there are a number of moments where it sounds like his solo is about to end, and it could end, but it keeps going for a little bit longer, a little bit longer, and then when the piano comes back in, it's like a revelation, um, you know, uh, and, and so I love that, that moment. Um, and it's, it's one of the first things I thought of just what's a part of a record where every time you hear it, you just want to give yourself, you know, just kick, kick, kick back and, and let it happen again and again. That, that's one of them for me. What I 
really like about this example is that you're not really picking a single moment per se, even though I guess you could talk about when Coltrane comes back on the piano, but really the moment here is extended across an entire solo, and it's about that buildup, as you were saying, the kind of ways in which Carter's bass line and his interplay with Coltrane leads you to anticipate something that doesn't come when you expect it to, so that by the point that it actually does arrive, I think what you're saying is it makes that that moment more special. So a great example there. For my last one, I'm going to go with just a very, very classic breakbeat in the hip-hop sample everything sense of the term. And this is from Rusty Bryant's, I think, 1970 or maybe late 1960s album, Fire Eater on Prestige, which is just an absolute classic in the world of so-called rare groove. And just to give credit where it's due, I was really turned on to this track and this drum break in particular by the late Matthew Africa, who I've talked about in the show before. Um, He was a friend, a a real kind of record-collecting role model and mentor in that sense. And one of the things he always said about Fire Eater is that every time he played this on his radio show, him and I both met because we were DJs on KALX-FM in Berkeley, every time he would play Fire Eater on the show, inevitably someone would call in to ask, what was that? And sure enough, I think the first time I ever played the same song on my show on KALX, at least one or two people called in to ask, what was that? And in particular, I I can't say that they're specifically talking about the drum break, but it does stand out quite a bit. And this is the great Idris Muhammad working the kit uh, for a drum solo toward the end of Fire Eater. And especially the last four bars of his solo are, to put it very lightly and to riff off of the name of the track, they are fire. This is a classic and perfect example of one of the types of, you know, breaks that we talked about uh, at, the, at the opening, which is dr- the dramatic stripping away of uh, a layer in the groove. And um, it's, I mean, the reason, one of the reasons why this is so fire is that that organ solo, you know, that, that precedes the open drums was fire. For that organ solo, you know, the drummer is locked in there, the, 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 um, the organ and the drums are locked in with one another, and uh, the drummer, I think, is, is really responding to um, and supporting, right, the, the soloist on, on, on the keys. And when that gets stripped away, the drummer continues to hold down that groove by, by himself. It's almost like this heroic feat, right? Like we had this thing that was so fire and now you've just given, you just sort of like laid it on me and it's all up to me to keep it going. 
and he does. He rises to the occasion. It's like it's like a, a miracle or an act of, of heroism in some way. That's part. That's kind of one way I, I hear it, right? And mm-hmm. and um, yeah, he's able to like. I mean, I think you know, I go back and listen to this to confirm it. But yeah. my sense is that he is emulating a lot of the same rhythms that you hear in the organ solo mm-hmm. and and sort of keeping that feeling keeping that groove alive as if the organ is almost still there in dialogue with yeah. what he's playing that's a great observation i think you're absolutely right that muhammad's playing is meant to be in dialogue and conversation with how the organ solo is working or how the organ in general is working on the song so fantastic observation lauren how about one more example from you I mean, one that I was just teaching about today, a song that I was just teaching teaching in one of my classes today, uh, we were talking about Kendrick Lamar's DNA. And so mm-hmm. the the change up there between the first second, first verse and the second verse. This is why I say Everything changes um, in that track um, in terms of what's happening rhythmically, what's happening. Um, there's also that uh, Rick James sample from Mary Jane, you know, give me the ganja, give me some ganja. In the pool, Godfather goes, only Lord knows. I've been going hammer, dodge paparazzi, freaking through the cameras, eat it for the way my students and I were talking about it today was there, I mean, that song is in many ways about, you know, Kendrick Lamar asserting, you know, this is who I am. This is my DNA, right? This, this is, and people like Geraldo Rivera and Fox News is try, are trying to tell me who I am, what I am as a black man, what rap music is, you know, what this is all about. And I'm resisting that. Um, I'm fighting back forcefully against that, you know, is what that song to me is saying emotionally. And that's dramatized in that shift from the first verse to the second verse by the intensification of Lamar's delivery, right? Uh, he, he accelerates the pace of his flow. Um, the first verse is very in the pocket. Born inside the beast, my expertise checked out in second grade. When I was nine, on sale hotel, we didn't have nowhere to stay. And very his flow is much more predictable and in the pocket uh, in the first verse and second verse. He's just like spilling over the bar line, letting you have it. I mean, he's, he's also manipulating his voice to sound more intense. But beyond any semantic content in, in his words, in, in his lyrics, um, it just sounds like this acceleration of intensity and, and emotion. Um, and it's all executed because of this, I, I think, like rhythmic, rhythmic shift. You ain't rich enough to hit the light escape. Tell me when destruction gonna be my fate. Gonna be a freak. Gonna be a well, Lauren, thank you so much for joining me today to help break this stuff down. It's always great to get just a, another outlook on it, especially one that is, in, is, in, is as informed as yours. Um, what are you working on right now? I'm working on... Um, a project mainly uh, trying to think about, uh, you know, given what's going on in the world right now, the questions that we're asking about um, racial justice and longstanding racial inequality. Um, I'm trying to think about what it means to be, uh, you know, a non-Black musicologist that, uh, you know, gets paid to write about and, and, and teach Black music. 
Um, so that's a, you know, sort of a heavy topic, but it, it really is about, um, you know, if we're going to be bringing black music, especially hip hop, which is becoming much more fashionable to, you know, teach and research within academia of late. And if we're going to be bringing that into schools and departments of music that have for so many years focused exclusively on Western classical music and are, are filled with predominantly uh, white male scholars, um, what are, the, what are the ethics of that? How can we do that in a way that doesn't just further perpetuate, um, you know, white supremacy? Sounds like a very, very good task, very necessary one. Um, where can people find you and your work online? Uh, they could find me, um, uh, you can friend me on Facebook, uh, you know, easy to find there. And I'm on Twitter, I think, at um, Lauren Kajikawa. So um, I don't, I don't, Hey, where else is, this is a good question, Oliver. Um, oh, you know, just look me up also on, on I'm a teach at the George Washington University. So you could look at my faculty page and send me an email. Um, but yeah I'm, yeah, I'm occasionally on Twitter. Well, Lauren, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us again. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to be back on Heat Rocks. Once again, that was Dr. Lauren Kajikawa, Associate Professor of Music at George Washington University in D.C. That will conclude this mini-sode. And special thanks once again to Pierre Ringwald from our Facebook group for throwing out the question that Lauren and I tackled. We have a new episode of Heat Rocks coming up this Thursday, as always. Our guest is going to be the Nigerian-American singing-songwriting duo of Van Jess. And I'm going to keep their album under wraps, but I think a lot of our listeners will be very pleasantly surprised by it. Until then, we'll see you next time. Thanks again. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist-owned. Audience-supported.